Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jack Vaughn launched Comedy Central Records in 2002 and won four Best Comedy Award Grammys with them. A decade later, he moved to Hollywood and joined Comedy Dynamics and New Wave, where Vaughn executive produced and helped distribute even more stand-up specials, documentaries, and showcase series, including the 2016 Grammy winner, Louis C.K. Live at Madison Square Garden. Vaughn is back in New York City now, where he started 2016 with a new job as head of comedy programming for Sirius XM Satellite Radio. How he did all that is fascinating, but perhaps not as amazing as what happened to him beforehand. So let's get to it! So Jack Vaughn, thank you so much for visiting my studio. I am thrilled to be here. And congratulations on yet another Grammy win. Oh, stop. Thanks. No, no it's, it's very exciting. Uh, it, Louis deserved it. It's, a, it's an amazing record. So for those of you just tuning in, which would be all of you since we just started, uh, Jack Vaughn uh, is the new head of comedy programming at Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Before that, you were working for Comedy Dynamics, and before that, Comedy Central Records. And Correct. You, and you were responsible for producing how many Grammy-winning Comedy a, albums? A bunch. Uh, probably six or seven. Do you get Do you get a trophy as well? I do. I do. In most cases, I, I get the statue. Uh, I've got a couple on there. They're pretty cool, i got to say. I, I never in a million years uh, thought would happen, but uh, they're, they're kind of cool to put on the shelf. Now, have you ever attended the Grammy Awards? I have, and I've stopped doing it because it's the kiss of death. Every time, <laughs> <laughs> every time I go... Uh, I don't win, and when I stay away, uh, I do. So I'm not superstitious or anything, but it seems right. to be working. So what was the first time you went to an awards? What was the first awards banquet ceremony, big red carpet deal you ever went to? Well, the uh, the the Grammys for for comedy is about the least glamorous affair you can go to, right? Because <laughs> they tape it at about noon, mm-hmm. and actually they don't tape it. In fairness, it's it's in like a banquet hall of a Holiday Inn, okay, and. Uh, they do like comedy is a category in the Grammys is right below Hawaiian music, uh, so it's not treated with a, a ton of respect. It's not televised, uh, and you just have you know like oh the the the, the Irish music mm-hmm. Grammy winner just won, and then you're up next for comedy. So that was that was sort of it. And then after after the the these minor categories. Don't uh, don't you know. relegate the ukulele or the shillelagh <laughs> to a minor category. I wouldn't dream of it, sir. But uh, those have are, have been somehow overlooked. Okay. And so uh, then you go to the real Grammy taping right. afterwards. Which, you know, I think it was in the Staples Center, and uh, pretty good show. Pretty good show. They yeah. have a lot of good people there, and uh, it's interesting. But you know, comedy is um, comedy is like a new, and and you get you know mm. plates of stuff, and it's it's. Yeah, it, it's it's not how it's portrayed on TV. Right. Say that. So that was uh, uh, the one year I went uh, that I really wanted to win. Uh, Stephen Wright. Oh. We had that record with Stephen Wright. And he was up for a uh, for a gram and he was there. And he's the nicest guy. Yeah, and, he is really uh, nice. It was also such a big deal because he hadn't made a record in twenty. It was a long years. time. Yeah, it was it was longer than that. And I mean, if if you had told a ten year old me who had worn out two copies of Stephen Wright's mm-hmm. "I Have a Pony." That I would be producing, I still have a pony. You know, twenty whatever years later, and be with Stephen Wright at the Grammys. I was like, "You're out of your mind." Uh, but that was that was pretty awesome. So let's go to ten year old Jack Vaughn. Oh, let's not. Where Where were you when you were ten? Very wiry. Uh, I was in Washington D.C. Okay. Um, we were stationed there. My parents were foreign service, so I grew up a lot overseas. And um, yeah, that's where. I sort of got my first taste of of the record biz because there was a a, a punk rock scene there that I was very into uh, as a kid, and then for high school uh, moved to Guatemala, and that's sort of where my love affair with comedy started because okay. um, the Guatemalan cable companies uh, had these giant satellite dishes where they would steal the feed 
from U.S. cable companies. So they would charge you for it, right? Mm-hmm. You, you'd pay your cable bill. But, uh, like, we got all the pay-per-view channels for free. <laughs> and uh, at the beginning of every month, the, all the U.S. cable companies would change their signal and re-encode it. And it would take them, like, two to four days. Mm-hmm. The, the Guatemalan cable companies, two to four days to uh, – to figure out what the what the encryption was, to hack so, it. yeah, you just you just have like static for the first <laughs> couple of days of the month, and then you get your your free pay per view. Um, but that was the days of you know the early days of Comedy Central when the Ha and the Laugh Network had merged, and I watched you know, Guatemala was really dangerous at the time, so I had to spend a lot of time inside, mm-hmm. and so just watched a shameful amount of television, and a lot of that was Comedy Central. Uh, Why you did know, you seek out the Comedy Channel instead of like the? Movie channels are. Oh, I did. Okay. I mean, I, like I uh, watched again way too much television, <laughs> but I was just really drawn to comedy. I, mm-hmm. I've been a fan of comedy forever, and you know, I'd memorize like Jake Johansson and Margaret Smith sets, and um, and it was the, it was in the days of like the A list and short attention span right. theater and stand up stand up where they were just you know, at that point they were really just running stand up comedy all the time because they didn't really have a lot more of you know scripted stuff right. that they were airing so yeah just was a huge fan just memorized the sets and would tell the sets to my friends so that's uh that's sort of the 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 birth of it now you said you were in guatemala for your high school years yeah that was what the 80s or the it was it was late 80s early 90s and you said that was dangerous but weren't you Crazy in even dangerous. more dangerous places as i recall from your yeah bio I mean, that's in my head uh, my my parents had a knack for choosing really dangerous countries at really dangerous points in time so I was in Iran in the late 70s, and we had to get out of there quickly. Uh, and, you know, Guatemala was really dangerous at the time because there was civil war. So, um, yeah, I think I think that, that this was, was pretty influential, and it's nice to... Now, how late that. were you in Iran in the late 70s? Really late. I think we got out... <laughs> like Argo late? No, no, three weeks before Argo. Okay. Uh, we, well, that's we still late. Out. Yeah, really late, really late. I mean, we got one of the last flights out. Um, uh, I, I was maybe five at the time, so I hear these stories secondhand from my parents. But they had apparently uh, booked a an El Al flight mm-hmm. out, uh, a little before the flight we actually took, and basically it, it was coming in, circled over Tehran. And they were like, "Yeah, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna land here." Uh, and then they had to scramble, and we got an Altalia flight out a few weeks later, which was one of the last flights out, uh, and. Um, the story I heard was that uh, they were cutting off the electricity at night, mm-hmm. uh, and martial law had been declared. The Shah had declared martial law. And so um, we were just sitting on the plane for hours, and then the uh, the pilot said, oh, well, they're shutting down the, the lights and the electricity at the airport. We have to stay on the tarmac overnight until we can – they turn the lights back on in the morning. Uh, but we're not doing that. <laughs> and so he basically just gunned it with just the uh, mm-hmm. with the running lights on the plane for for to see the the runway, and uh, there was a lot of rejoicing. And that flight took you and your family. Uh, we were in where? Cyprus for a few months, mm-hmm. uh, and then Mexico City. We we sort of took an extended vacation because that was a pretty traumatic experience. I mean, my little sister was born in Iran. I mean, the, the stories are endless, but sort of crazy times. But then we went to D.C. Uh, so if you're decade. if you're only five. Or so at the time, what me- what like what what actual memories do you have versus what what's kind of I've got a lot of really strong memories from the time, especially sense memories. Like mm. I, I was, uh, I hated going to my nursery school because I was one of the few American kids there, and the, the, the Iranian kids were just mean to me and mm-hmm. would beat me up every day. And I think there are still claw marks to this day in my parents' dining room table leg where they'd have to pry me loose to put me on this horrible little minivan that oh took goodness. me to school. On it, I was bitten by a. a probably rabid gutter dog there it was just it was it was weird and um you know there was again a lot of time inside because things were starting to fall apart right and uh yeah it it just wasn't safe to be on the streets at a lot of that point were you aware of the hostage crisis that followed yeah oh yeah we paid close attention to that um it's it's just crazy just to think that yeah yeah we, that could have been us, right? You know. So, what did you feel? I presume you watched Argo, the movie. Yeah. What did you feel? Um, did it trigger any emotions? It did. It triggered a few sense memories. It was like, ah, oh, there were certain smells there. Like, uh, they have a really great bread called sangak mm-hmm. that I used to eat by the sheet 
And I could almost, you know, seeing that and being that, you could just sort of smell it. And the, they got the visuals right. It brought back a lot of that sort of awful 70s fashion memory of the time. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of interesting to see. I love that movie. I think it's great. But you still describe Guatemala as dangerous, too. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, it was in their midst, the midst of their civil war. Right. So, you know, the Marxist guerrillas. <laughs> oh, just were, that. <laughs> yeah, it was. For those of you listening in 2017, uh, I know we're in, currently in a civil war, but. <laughs> But President Trump says any day it's gonna it's gonna abate once yes. once we get Mexico to pay for that wall. Uh, so growing up, yeah. is it, so so you're in Guatemala during the Guatemalan Civil War and you're watching the the pay cable that you've hacked. Yes, and um, yes. watching a lot of Ha and early Comedy Central. What did you What did you envision your adult life to be like at that point? Um, getting out of there. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there was. So I was really enamored of this this DIY punk rock scene in D, in DC, and so um, I really loved that idea, and was in really junky uh, punk rock bands, mm-hmm. and no one wanted us, uh, no one wanted to hear us, no record label wanted to put us out, especially in Guatemala and especially pre Nirvana, so we had to figure out you know how to put on our own shows mm-hmm. and put out our own records, and I loved that. I love the notion of just like, yeah, we can press a record and put it out on our own. So uh, started putting out our bands and started putting out friends' bands. And then I moved back to the U.S. for college mm-hmm. and uh, did started doing the record label thing full time um, and did that for, you know, throughout the whole my whole college career. And at that time, you know, by the time I graduated college, about 96, mm-hmm. the punk rock scene had gotten in my mind, really boring. It seemed like all of the, the hair metal bands had now be, you know, started wearing flannel and were doing it. It just become awful. Um, were you the singer or the guitarist? What'd you no, play? I'm not talented. I was the drummer. <laughs> the drummer uh, has talent too. It's the backbone. It's the spine. Indeed. Indeed. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not musical or anything. I, I was, I was a very, very mediocre drummer. But uh, you had, uh, you were very tech savvy though, because you were making, Making the records, you're the one. You're you're so nice to say that's not true either. Uh, I was sort of making it, uh, you know, and had the other people, you know, talented people actually uh, do the engineering mm-hmm. and uh, and all of that. I like to. Th- there was one time where I, I did the artwork mm-hmm. uh, from one of the records, and it's atrocious. I mean, it's really really bad, and there is a a misspelling in the first word. Uh, I misspelled echoes. If you okay. can, yeah. So I, I, I learned very, very quickly to leave it in the hands of professionals. And I feel like uh, where I, my, some of my strengths are is, is being able to get talented people together right. to, to do these things. Uh, I wish I were talented. I'm, I'm just clearly not. So <laughs> it, you know, it's, But you have an eye for talent. I like to think so. Um, and I never really believed that. Until until Comedy Central Records. So it, before that, though, in the '90s, when you were just doing the, you're playing in punk bands, selling punk band records. Yeah. The most sales you were selling them at shows, or where were the sales happening? Um, in the a '90s, a lot at shows. Back at that time, it was so difficult, especially if you were a no name, you know, punk rock label, mm-hmm. to get distribution because you'd have to. It, it was a triple or quadruple whammies. Like you have to find a distributor who would take the records. You had to get them to buy them, get stores to take them, get stores to restock them if you sold out, and then most critically get the distributors to pay you, which they almost never did. So, <laughs> Kind of like club bookers. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I think the, the parallels run deep uh, in a lot of these businesses. So it was really tough. And, you know, You'd had to take out expensive ads and fanzines and do posters, and if you shot a video, there was no hope that it would ever get seen. Uh, so it was really, really difficult, and you had to make your name, you know, with a, either a big independent or just touring a lot. Or, um, yeah, it was a really, really difficult. So, time. what kind of name had you made for yourself to convince Comedy Central to to let you start a record label? Uh, it's uh, so. After the punk rock thing, this is mm-hmm. like 96, I had really burnt out on it. I, I didn't think there was anything new or interesting coming out. I was completely bored. Um, and I tried a summer working at an investment bank. And it was it was actually a great experience. And I really liked everyone I worked with. And they had me evaluating uh, record label business plans, 
which I loved. But it realized that it was, this was not the career for me. Right. You were in D.C. or New York? Uh, New York. Okay. Um, and so about that time, I had noticed that there was an underground movement of swing bands happening. Oh, uh, yeah, the late 90s. Yeah, yeah exactly. And we, it was hip for about a year and a half. Yeah, the very, 90s. But, very hip. You know, it, it's, it's almost impossible to, to, to remember it now as hip. Because in my mind, it's just, I, it's, it's so lame and overdone. And but, yet my memories of 1998 are so fond. <laughs> it wasn't a bad year. It was a great year for me. Good. <laughs> what, what was happening for, for Sean at that point? Uh, I was writing for a newspaper in the suburbs of Seattle and going to open mics stand-up in Seattle and then going to swing dance clubs after the open mic. Awesome. We're taking dance lessons? Yeah. Because they would they would usually yeah, yeah. they would usually have a dance lesson the first half hour, and then it led right into dancing. And it's at the end of the idea, lesson, right? you were already dancing with like six or seven different women. Right? There's no downside. No, there's no downside. It's good times. Well, I mean, it was it was a great story because back then, a lot of the guys in these swing bands were ex punk rockers, right? Because it, oh, right. it was so like different. the straight cat. Yeah, and the the Brian big bad voodoo daddy yeah. guys were all punk rockers, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it was a really good counterweight to what was going on in grunge because, you know, guys were dressing up again. Right. Women could go to shows again. People were dancing. It was upbeat. So it had a melody. It was, you know, horn-oriented dancing. It was very music. happy, friendly. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. It was good. Yeah, no, it was a good time. It was a good time for our nation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the – so that was great. And so I started signing these, these uh, swing bands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the label was just small enough that I couldn't – Sign a Big Bad Voodoo Daddy or a Royal Crown Review, or anyway, I just I didn't have quite Scroll enough money. Oh yeah, I, w- <laughs> I mean, I, I wish every day that I had sold plasma right to to get them enough, oh, wow. enough money to get to sign one of these. Not bands. plasma TVs, the plasma yeah, from your blood. From my body, I would have, I would have if if it had meant that we I could have signed one of these bands. But we had all of the sort of second tier. That sounds that sounds me. All the like the the. The not as famous swing right. bands we had on label. We did a big compilation with all the big guys. And right, it was going like really feature acts instead of headliners. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, it was. Yeah, all right. I, I, I was going to do a terrible analogy, but what was? What I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to dig myself out of that <laughs> hole. <laughs> what was that record label called? It was called Slim Style. Okay, and it was great mm-hmm. for a year and a half because Swingers came out, and then that Gap ad. You remember? If you remember I don't know if you remember that. Oh story, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it just exploded. And it was such a good story that everyone grabbed onto it. The media loved it. And it was all swing all the time for like 18 months. Yeah. And then it was so good a story. After that time, people were just like, ugh, enough. Done. Uh, this is this is terrible. We're tired of this. And I've never seen a music genre come and go so quickly as the swing thing. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of at loose ends. I remember one day in mid-'99 – the phone stopped ringing. Like one day in July, just the phone stopped ringing and couldn't sell another swing record after that. So I was sort of at loose ends, right? Because I'd put so much energy into this. And uh, were you still at the investment bank or no? No, no, no. I left. I, I, I left that. I, okay. I, I only did that for like two months. Okay. Um, and I was in Arizona at the time, um, running this label because I thought, oh, you can run. You know, it's, it's the internet age. You can run. You can a be anywhere. Label. Yeah, you can. And, and you, you picked can. Arizona. Uh, uh, I lived in Arizona for a couple of years. Jealous? Yeah. Oh, what part? Uh, I lived in Paradise Valley. Oh, nice. Which is more valley than Paradise. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, and there, there again, there are a lot of things to recommend about Arizona. But, yes. Uh, uh, anyway, so so um, you're in Arizona. I, no I went one's... to college in Arizona, so okay. that's why I stayed. So I thought, yeah, yeah, I could again, very close to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. can run from everywhere, and uh, you couldn't. So I, I just I didn't know what to do, and I had always wanted to do a comedy label because, you know, there were a lot of really great comics out there who weren't the A list, who just who had no outlet for their material other than you know half hours on Comedy Central or wherever. And I saw Mitch Hedberg on a Premium Blend, if you remember that show. Oh, that was an infamous Premium Blend, actually. So good, yeah, so good. He had that joke where. Uh, I can't get, wait to get off stage because I got a roll of lifesavers in my pocket, and the next <laughs> one's pineapple. And you know, oh he, yeah, he, oh, he's the best. So I found his CD online, ordered mm. it, and memorized it. I couldn't believe anything that good uh, was not widely distributed. Um, 
And Raikou Disc, I think about that time, had just started reissuing the Bill Hicks catalog and memorized those. Those were such great records. And so instead of raising money again and trying to do it on my own, I thought, why don't I approach Comedy Central with the notion of starting a record label? And a buddy of mine knew Larry Divney, who was the head of Comedy Central, and got me a meeting with him. And um, In New York or L.A.? In New York. Okay. So flew out to New York and met with Larry. And I looked really young. And <laughs> I, you know, back then... Well, you I, were kind of young. Yeah, I was like 26, 27. So I, I looked maybe 19 at the time. Did you have a nice suit? Uh, yes, actually. <laughs> I, I did. Well, for all the swing days. You know, it was like a big purple zoot suit. Uh, you you didn't wear a purple zoot suit to meet Comedy Central, did you? Probably not. Okay. Uh, but it would have been a great story <laughs> if I did. But uh, he said, talk to this woman, Holly Lim, mm-hmm. who's the head of New Business Development. And uh, I credit Holly with so much and, and believe him with me. So I go down uh, and meet with her. And I had really never wanted anything more than to do this label and to do it with Comedy Central because being you know having been so close to Comedy Central for all this time. Right, watching it as a teenager in Guatemala. Oh my god. I mean it was it was it was like the, It was like your your lifeline to America. Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean the the notion of working there was just un, you know unreal to me. I didn't think there was any chance. So I presented the plan and What did you present? So there did was you have like PowerPoint or Charts and graphs, a little Calvin bit. and Hobbes folder. <laughs> what did you have? This was a little bit before PowerPoint had right. Taken so off. what did you, yeah? So I'm curious, what did you like a, walk into the office with? Like a printed out MS Word doc, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and I'm sure it was incredibly unsophisticated. Okay. Um, but I went with a friend of mine, uh, a guy named Vin Farrell, who would have um, done the the home video and, and book side mm-hmm. of it. Um, that was the guy who introduced me to uh, to Larry. And uh, presented her this plan, and I don't think she liked the idea. Uh, she said, oh, yeah, we've been talking to some major labels about maybe doing something, and you know, I'd like to see a little bit more information on the plan, on you know, about this and this. I, I really thought I was getting the brush off. Um, and then I said, oh, great, uh, fantastic. I'd love to present you more information. Um, when can I see you next? And she's, she said, well, I'm going to be traveling for the next few weeks. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm getting the brush off. And I said, well, where are you going to be? And she goes, well, I'm going to be in Las Vegas in the next few days. And I go, that's crazy. I'm going to be in Las Vegas. And I, said, and I wasn't going to be in Vegas. But it was it was like an eight-hour drive from Tucson. Right. So you, so, so you could be in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Quite flew easy. home. Mm-hmm. And for almost literally the next three days straight, I just stayed up working on the plan. And I got maybe five hours sleep in that time. And I'd broken my right foot. This is not sort of not germane to anything, but I'd broken my right foot. Well, uh, if you're going to be time. driving from Tucson to Las well, Vegas, exactly. having a broken right foot well, is it was... probably the <laughs> the wrong foot. Exactly, exactly. You're getting off on the wrong foot. <laughs> oh, well done, Sean. Thank you. Uh, so um, I, at 3 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. on the day I'm supposed to meet with Holly, I leave Kinko's with these plans, uh, you know, all ba- nicely bound, mm-hmm. and drive delirious with sleep with my left foot for eight or eight and a half hours. Uh, I sit down with her, uh, presented the plan. I have no idea what I said, and then checked into a hotel and slept for like a day and a half. Um, and then would just call every now and then from Arizona saying, hey, I'm going to be in New York on business. Can you uh, can you meet with me to discuss this plan? Mm-hmm. And if she said yes, I would book the ticket. Uh, <laughs> of course, I wasn't going to be in New York. But, right. If not, uh, I wouldn't. And she was so cool and, uh, you know, I, I think really quickly caught on the idea that it could work. And then 9-11 happened. So I'm like, ah, this is all derailed. Right. And after about nine months of just just sort of calling and making a new, real ass and a nuisance of myself, she said, um, yeah, we'll give you a little money to try this. Come on out to New York. And so I did. I moved out in the middle of February, uh, living in a tiny little apartment. And uh, how are you? How are you making ends meet for those nine months before that? Barely. Um, it's very inexpensive to live in Tucson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, so uh, 
just barely, you know, mm-hmm. uh, running on running on fumes. And so uh, this was this was a great this was a great change. I mean, this is the, the I mean, really Hollywood. I, I cannot say like this changed my life. Right. Because I, mean, I, I really considered myself a failure. Because even though the some style had done really well, you know, it, it collapsed after after a year and a half. And I, I was feeling really I – I couldn't get out of bed, didn't know what I would do next. I, I really felt like an utter failure. And um, so this was, a, this was a second lease on life. And not only that, I mean, it was a Comedy Central. So like, oh, amazing. Yeah. And so how much money did she give you to start? What was the seed? There was no, there was no budget necessarily. I had to go every, – every – record i had mm-hmm. i had to go and say hey this is what i think we're is going to cost us and this is how much money i think we're going to bring in and so the first five acts that i signed were uh jim brewer bobcat goldthwaite david tell lewis black mitch hedberg i guess six and this uh, up-and-coming club comic named dane cook uh who <laughs> self-released a really great album and um you know this was these guys weren't the only real household names, I think, at the time were Bobcat and Jim Brewer because of SNL. Right, Jim Brewer was in SNL, and yeah. Bobcat was was Bobcat. Bobcat, yeah. and um, uh, they had a show on the air at the time, uh, called this prank calling puppet show called Cranking. Yes, that was just launching, and so that was also another one of our first releases. It could, actually could have been our first release, which was great because those records did fantastic. I mean, I think they. The first one did like a hundred thousand, so it was it was really it was way more than expectation too. Right. So that was that was really a good help. To did get you listen to like the Jerky Boys or anything like that? Oh when yeah, you were younger? oh yeah. Who did? I mean, okay. those were those were great records. And I th- I feel like the Crank Anchor like every generation, every like nine to eleven years, crank calls become a thing. Like right. people were, People discuss you know, the kids discover crank calls right. and they get really into them and then then they get bored of them. The difference with crank anchors though was it was comedians that you knew. Yeah, it was so good too. It or was at least so people, good. People knew who they were. The Jerky Boys didn't. Right, right. Never they, knew who they they're were. They're sort of the trailblazers yeah. though. I feel like, and it was just such a phenomenon. Right. Um, but it was it was the right show at the right time, you know. And um, so just started putting out these records, and um, it was it was difficult because you had to convince. Not only the stores to take them. I mean, there weren't comedy sections. Like no one was putting out these records. Major labels would put out, uh, like a, like a Bill Cosby or right. a Seinfeld or a Chris Rock, um, record, and but it was only the superstars. Right. No one under A plus talent was getting record deals. You know, like Sandler, and so there were lots of art. Like I, I couldn't believe it signed David Tell because you know he was so good and that record's so good. I couldn't believe that people didn't want this. And right. at the time, you know, when artists were self-releasing albums, they, they weren't spending a lot of money on the art. And it was still that era where they're like in a blazer with the sleeves rolled up <laughs> on a stool in front of a, 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 a... I also couldn't believe that someone would spend a decade working on a killer set and then not spend a lot of money recording it or doing the artwork, uh, which not a lot were. And so I really wanted to treat these like punk rock records. Like these were works of art. They should get artistic covers. And that that, that was sort of the driving force behind it. Right. And um, uh, I think it, it was profitable very quickly. And I think we became a top ten label, independent label, within three years and a top five within five. Uh, and it was so great because, because there was almost no one doing it at the time. I really had the pick of the litter. And we could advertise them on television, and we were, it was it was just like the perfect combination of promotion and artists being available. Right, it's like synergy when you have David oh. David Tell hosting Insomniac. Exactly. And then, oh, by the way, pick up his new album. Exactly. We ran, ran lower thirds during Insomniac and commercials. It was it was just perfect. It was great, and those records sold a ton, um, and just kept. Signing acts and Comedy Central has a great talent department, and you know we would we would talk and figure out you know who was who was good and you know, to, you know those records also helped make the careers of a lot of those right guys. Well, I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned those first six. You know, Dane Cook obviously with uh, Retaliation. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a and like 
hit the top He's ten right. of the overall charts. That's an interesting story because he had um, self-released the record, and you know he was a phenomenon. Like there would be a two or three hour line after every one of his shows where people just wanted to stay behind and take pictures. Right, and um, we repackaged that the Heartful of Swallows, Heartful. which was the right. That was the early one, one. Yeah. exactly. And we put um, he had a bunch of of programming on Comedy Central, so we put it with a DVD, which was one of, if not the first times that really was done. And we quietly sold two thousand copies of that record every week, like clockwork, for two years. So by the time Retaliation came out, I mean I think we'd sold I don't know what it was. I don't, don't want to mess up the math, but right. like a half a million copies of that record quietly. Um, at retail, and like, and, and no one over twenty five knew who he was at that point. <laughs> yeah, so that is very true. But I knew we could spend a lot of money on the marketing for Retaliation because we had this huge base of of sales and you know rabid followers. Right. So just spend a ton on marketing and pricing and positioning at retail and and billboards and bus sides and all all this kind of stuff. And um, I think it sold like eighty six thousand copies first week. And was number three or four on the Billboard yeah. Top 200, and that was like that what moment where people like, who is this guy? Right. Um, and, and what is this record label? Exactly. It's not Warner Brothers. Or... <laughs> well, I, hopefully they said that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, well, the industry people did, right? I, I, I'd like to think so. Uh, I, I don't really know any industry people because I've never been in the industry. Well, what did it so. what did it mean to you? What was that moment like when the first week sales for Retaliation came in? Unbelievable. Unbelievable, and it, it was sort of weird though because because it, it was a newly created sort of job at Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. Um, no one really knew what it was or what was going on, so I had I had very little feedback or gauge as to what people thought about it. Um, so I really didn't get a bunch of feedback. I, I was thrilled, and I, I just couldn't believe it. You know, when you look at those charts, I'm like, is this is this for real? Right. Um, and it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword because um, I could sign really whoever I wanted to, um, and as long as the label was profitable, they sort of left me alone. So it was I, – I could do it, but I, I was doing it all really alone for a long time. Um and was sleeping in the office and, you know, there was a, there was a shower at Comedy Central. So a lot of the, you know, especially during the Dan Cook days when it was so crazy, I, I just brought a sleeping bag in the office and would shower in the And the offices at that point were in Times uh, Square? Columbus or? Circle. Columbus Circle. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it was just good times. I mean, it was so fun. It's just like a, like a Wild West. Now, era. how long, how long did you kind of have the comedy field? How long did you have kind of that domination where you could pick anybody before other people um, came to the surface and were competing with you for the top, almost, top names. Almost to when I left, uh, more labels sprouted up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that for a long time we were in the dominant position because we could advertise on television. Right. And um, I like to think it was sort of the gold standard of, of places to be because we're very artist-friendly. Like, we never released anything that the you know, like if, if a comic had a bad set, we would just throw out the tape and redo it. Mm-hmm. And we focused a lot on the artwork and just really had good distribution and didn't release a lot of stuff. It was very, it was very picky, right? So, I, so we would release maybe a dozen or fewer albums a year and really focus on making sure that they were uh, amazing right. and the right talent and a hit. So I feel like th- almost throughout the whole the whole tenure okay. that that it was, you know. There were there were a couple artists who I really regret not signing and will haunt me forever. But uh, who, for are, most, who are those? Uh, Speak now or forever hold your peace. I would really love to have released those David Cross records. Um, I wish I could have signed Patton Oswalt earlier, and I loved Flight of the Concords. Mm-hmm. But at the time, they didn't have an HBO show, right. so uh, like it's a New Zealand-based <laughs> folk band. How can I? But um, there were every year I would release something, one record that I really loved, but didn't know if it had any commercial potential. Okay, um, and that was 
that sort of mitigated the the the, the big fish that got away. Um, and some sometimes they did great. I was, I was just going to ask, what was the what was like the significant wild card that you were like, I took a chance on this person, and then they turned out to be um, the first. They turned out big. I think the first John Mulaney record was mm. one of those because he was working at Comedy Central, and um, I'm embarrassed to say it took me a long time to see him perform stand up. But when I did, it was just like, oh my god! It was one of those, one of those moments like, yeah. why is he not? Huge, because he, he's clearly a genius and has an amazing voice that's fully formed, fully realized. He's clearly you know, super smart, and uh, that was it. Was one of those like, man, this <laughs> needs to this needs to be recorded. Uh, and I think there were, there were there were a bunch of those. I can't remember which ones they were now, but there were, yeah, there were only a, there were only a couple that didn't um, actually wind up doing. Well, in the end, you talked about uh, we talked about going to the Grammys. What was the if the Grammys kind of treated the comedy category as second class? What was the biggest event, the first really big event you got to attend where you felt, oh, I'm a, I, you know what, I'm a black tie big shot. <laughs> there, I, I still don't feel like I'm a black. I, I, I don't get invited to a lot of those things. Really? It's, yeah. No, it's it, there's there's very little glamour, uh, in. In, in my world, I'm trying to think. I mean, uh, loved going to the Comedy Central roast. I was just going to say, you those probably went fun. to the roast, right? Yeah, those were a lot of fun. Those were a lot of fun. Although I, those never came out as records, did they? Maybe DVDs, they, but not They CDs? did. They came out as And you know what? For the life of me, I couldn't tell you why they didn't come out. It could be because of contractual stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I always found that programming to be the most, some of the, some of the best programming in Comedy Central. Just the most interesting because it's just... You know the gloves are off, and it's just so. Were you well still at Comedy and... Central for the Trump roast, or had you Trump left? I think I think I probably left. But that, that was the last draw. That was so good. That was a lot. You're <laughs> like, I can't work at Comedy <laughs> Central anymore. <laughs> I love Trump too much. <laughs> no, they, 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 it was, it's uh, no. That was that would have been an interesting one to, to see. Maybe maybe I was there, but yeah, you know, he's terrifying. Well, having having started. Comedy Central Records from, you know, delirious sleepless nights in Tucson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what was the impetus that 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 told you you could leave it behind? Um, I wanted to try something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I had done basically what I had hoped to do. Signed, damn near all the people I wanted to and I always wanted to try my hand something else um, and and you know Comedy Dynamics a new way was a good way to try television and film production which I'd always been interested in and uh, you know it was it was a move to Los Angeles and Burbank even ah <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood uh, <laughs> sort of uh, and, and yeah it just it seemed like the right time okay and I felt myself getting a little stale, I thought. So it was just the, the opportunity presented itself. And, and, and um, yeah, so so decided to, to, to move out to Los Angeles and, and do and, – and did a lot of it. You know, there was there was a bunch of stuff and there's there's so much to do. And it was really interesting moving from uh, – well, initially, you know, doing out of your, your bedroom mm-hmm. to, to working at Comedy Central to, to working at – uh, you know, a, a, a mid-size independent company, um, and just negotiating because there was a lot to do. You know, right. there's so much to do, and the there were, there were far more opportunities. I was a little bit siloed. I felt at Comedy Central uh, because I was the record guy and I was the audio guy, and that's what I was expected hmm. to do. So I didn't really feel like I could break out of that, okay. you know, which, which is fine. Because so this was I a chance to grow exactly. What did you What did you learn the most about yourself in the four years you were in Hollywood with that I dynamic really, kind of dynamics? That I love New York. <laughs> uh, that was that was one of the. the I'm just I'm I'm a New Yorker at heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was born here. I love it here, and uh, but I learned a ton. I mean, the the business is getting not about, I mean about myself. I don't know, but. Um, the business is becoming so fragmented and there's so many new ways that that material is getting out there that 
it's almost unfathomable. I mean, but, uh, streaming both audio and video and new ways of that people are getting TV and seeing videos and right. watching things on their phone. It's 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 it, all with different protocols and codecs and like no one knows what's going to be the dominant player and um the the industry's gotten weird it's sort of like grabbing nickels out of the air because everyone's just paying a small amount of money for content and if you grab enough nickels you can make a business out of it um so that's it's really interesting to see how it's fragmenting we're clearly in a golden age of of media but it's just becoming so much harder i feel like to make a business out of it because they're they're just there's, it's it's become so fragmented and everyone wants things for free. Especially when you when you start out making records for Comedy Central and you're saying you go into a record store and there's barely a comedy section. Yeah. In a record store. Now there's not record stores. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's weird so from going from sort of no comedy section to big comedy section to no records to digital sales like iTunes and that's going away now. I don't. I don't know if people really like the the transactional digital sales of albums is is going away, largely because of um, streaming and because right. of um, you know non Apple smartphones right. not wanting iTunes on them. So everyone's doing streaming now because they, right. people can listen on Spotify or Pandora or Sirius, or Sirius XM, XM, ladies Saturday, and gentlemen, satellite radio. Your home for comedy. Uh, <laughs> what was and, before yeah. I ask you about that? Yeah. Um, was there a moment when you realized how much the comedy business had changed? Um, no, because I I feel like the the formats change, mm-hmm. but my my sort of tenure in the comedy business has been pretty consistent. I I feel like we're uh, not to overuse the term, but in a golden age mm-hmm. of comedy that sort of started. <laughs> I don't want to say I'm responsible. No, but first, started with around you know 2000, right? And just a really great crop of amazingly talented comics with their own voices um, that has continued pretty much with you know a, a few peaks and valleys, mm-hmm. but unabated through today. And they're just there's just a lot of really great comics who are doing amazing stuff. And you, you think like, oh. You're going to run out of jokes or points of view at some point, but it's just every day it seems like there's another great comic out there. So um, there was because I know you're married and you have a child. Sure. Was there a moment? Where'd where... you hear that? <laughs> that was your excuse for not uh, doing this interview earlier. Yes, <laughs> they, yes, yes. My wife and child. <laughs> oh, they're at home waiting for waiting, uh, waiting for. But was there a moment dinner. where, like, uh, you know, you're at the end of the day, you're sitting there and going, "Man, this used to be so." simpler like you mentioned the fragmentation yeah. of it all was there a moment where you where you where it suddenly dawned on you how much everything had changed or everything had boomed it's a great it's a great when the question. boom yeah, became yeah. when the boom became real to you right um when was the first time that kind of dawned on you that like oh my it's gotten a lot bigger since 2002 um this is going to sort of sound like it's a great question it's going to sound like a cop-out but I feel like it changes so quickly mm-hmm. and so constantly. It's just more trying to keep up mm-hmm. with it because it really everything changes so quickly now, right? And what was a dominant player, a dominant factor uh, now is not going to be in three months. Quite literally, three months from now, everything is going to change, and um, each each phase has its own pluses and minuses to it. So when when digital albums became a thing, it was great because we didn't have to manufacture CDs and we didn't have to worry about returns or warehousing or shipping stuff or, uh, you know, printing things. Right. It, it, it was great. Brought all the overhead down. Yeah, it did. And and you didn't have to worry about, you know, stores keeping things in stock, right? Because you, you could just – it was out there on right. iTunes just forever. Click. And you could – it was very easy to find, yeah. which is great. And – Comedy wasn't hit like the music industry was hit with the singles issue because people don't buy comedy singles, really. Right. Like they want to listen to the set whole cloth. So 
um, when iTunes came out and the major labels, the major music labels were like, oh, people were just buying the singles. And just gonna, like, we didn't care. It didn't affect us really at all because people just kept buying the whole album. So um, streaming was a little bit more of an issue um, because it became a singles market. But that's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's unavoidable. And it, it's going to change more. And there are going to be more players. People are going to come and go. At Comedy Central, anytime there was a new format, I really didn't think about, like, well, should we be on it? It's like, yeah, of course we should be on it because who knows? Right. Uh, you know, next time I look, it could be the dominant player. And a worst-case scenario, you know, it would go out of business and you know, owing us 38 bucks. Like, who cares? Um, the downside risk was really light, and the upside was that you'd be, you know, riding the crest of a new technology that's going to take over. And it's almost impossible to predict. So, yeah, I mean, there there wasn't there wasn't like a – holy cow moment it was it was all just like oh, i hope i can stay ahead of this tsunami uh and i hope i i hope i don't lose my ear you know like, i hope i what i think is funny other people think is funny um so which it, which is a constant terror because i don't really i don't right. know um i feel like i myself getting older by the day and maybe not having my finger on the pulse but i i, I hope that you know my sense of humor is, is others because that's that's just what, what I gauge it on. Well, although your your new job not only brings you back to New York, which is something you wanted, but also, you know, Sirius XM. I've been in that building, and you know, there's a gauntlet of studios, so you can yeah. you can kind of quickly find out the pulse just by walking down the halls of all the different channels that are broadcasting simultaneously. It's you're totally right. I mean, there's an excitement there that's sort of palpable i mean i don't know if you, if you feel it when because there's so much going on right. everyone everyone there's so passionate about what they do uh you go through past these music channels and like ah oh, i am super into reggae and I, <laughs> you have these really really fascinating people who are you have these encyclopedic knowledges right. of these certain genres and it's it's really impressive even just hanging out in the lobby the the people who come through who oh, are guests on oh it's crazy guests on all the channels you're like oh Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just walked by, you know, Amy Sedaris today, and, uh, and then just, there's uh, the Archbishop because there's a Catholic channel. Exactly. It's 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 really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, Do you feel yeah. like you've uh, settled in at this point? Um, no. I mean, <laughs> it's a great team who mm-hmm. knows what they're doing, which is is my savior. Um, but you know, it it takes a little while to learn the the ins and outs and how things work and. You know, Sirius is an amazing and complex company that that does a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, it's, it's it's a really steep learning curve. But it's I mean, the the nice thing about it is that they're not ratings dependent. So they really trust people to to program interesting, cool stuff that the listeners are going to like. Which is one of the things I love about the company because. Yeah, they, they really trust their programmers, and they just want the best stuff out there. And just, um, yeah, we have we have six comedy channels, and uh, I, I feel like they're they're really just well curated with really good stuff. Um, I've, I worked with Sirius a lot on the other side of the table uh, at Comedy Central, and one of the last things I did at Comedy Central was to uh, put the deal in place to start the Comedy Central channel. Okay, and that's sort of what really. You know, seeing inside of Sirius and what uh, and what they do is just it's like, oh, I get it. Uh, and so it was really cool when, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was offered the gig and uh, and jumped at it. What's the what's the best advice you've received along the way? Mm, interesting question. Um, don't do anything for the money. <laughs> uh, which I I can identify with that. <laughs> which, is, in, especially in a creative field, mm-hmm. is you, you may sound stupid or may sound obvious or some combination of the two, but it's totally it's totally true. I, I feel like because if it's very very clear when you're just doing it something for a paycheck and. You have to have that that passion again, especially in a creative field. In other fields, not as much, but yeah. In order to you know to make sure you're doing the best work, that it can't be a motivator. And on the flip side, if somebody isn't in show business or radio or production, 
but they want to be. And so they see you at a thing and they come up to you and they ask you for advice. What's the first thing you tell them? Oh, I'm so bad. I'm so bad at advice. Uh, yeah, so what's the first thing you say? Do you go, oh, you should really talk to that guy right over there. Or, That's a good, I know or, talent. Or Holly helped me, so <laughs> yeah. just ask Holly. Yeah, yeah, Um Well, the strange thing, I've gotten probably more bad advice than good mm-hmm. in life. It's, it's, so it's sort of, I said, like, take it with a, I, I, yeah, you gotta take it, you gotta figure things out, right. really, for yourself. But the, for a comic, there only have been really two criteria that I've used in signing comics. So one is, obviously, are you really, really funny? But the second one is, do you have a clearly identifiable voice or mm-hmm. point of view, right? Because you need that. Because if you, you look at a, a Todd Berry or Maria Bamford or a Louis Black or name your favorite comedian, they have – and if it's not it, – it's not like – Oh, this guy smashes fruit. It doesn't have to be that on the nose. Right. Or, or it, and if it, you're going to be smashing fruit, make sure to get it on video. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> the right. audio won't capture it quite as well. Put out a record. <laughs> um, but uh, the you – know, just there, – there you need to know when you're walking in to your set who you are and just have that clear voice and point of view – because that's how there are, there are lots of really great joke writers out there who are not going to be successful because I, I don't know who they are, right? So mm-hmm. again, think of your favorite comics. You can immediately pinpoint in your mind what they're about, and it takes a lot of times. It takes a long time to develop that voice or point of view or just sort of defining aspect of who you are as a comic. But it's so critical. I, I, I I'd be hard pressed to think of a comic. Who doesn't? Who is successful? Who doesn't have that? Um, so anyway, that's that's. It's not advice. It's just an observation, right? right? So, um, but I found it to be true way more often than not. Uh, and you know, it just guided my signing practices through the years. Well, Jack, uh, thank you uh, not just for sitting down with me and sharing your stories and and where you're at, but but also for all the. Great comedy you've been responsible for bringing to all of us. Oh, I really appreciate it. Stop. No, no, it's it's been it's been such a fun ride, and thanks for having me. It's 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 really nice to uh, to talk to you. I know we we talk about this stuff uh, a lot, but it's nice to it's nice to get it get it on uh, get it recorded on posterity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for posterity in posterity, whatever. Somewhere near posterity. This yes. has been a lot of fun. So, so posterity. Thanks. thanks for having me. No, thanks for being here. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.